This is an ABC podcast. This is the Conversation Hour on ABC Radio Melbourne and Victoria. How often do you think about shipwrecks? Now, I'll confess, I don't think about shipwrecks very often at all. In fact, the last time I'd have had shipwrecks on my mind was probably when the fourth Assassin's Creed video game came out before. And uh, before that, maybe when I read a Peter Benchley novel once. But luckily, there are a lot of people who do think about shipwrecks, who think about them, who hunt for them, who preserve them and study them. And what those wrecks can tell us about our history is absolutely incredible. My name's Nick Healy. I'm filling in for Rochelle for the next few days, coming to you from uh, the very landlocked Shepparton in the Goulburn Valley. And here's a couple of numbers that really surprised me. At a rough estimate, there are about 660 historic shipwrecks off the Victorian coast. And of those, only 330 have been found, only half. So on today's show, you're going to meet just some of the people who are leading the hunt for those wrecks, a a hunt that can be surprisingly high-tech and involve a lot of different people. These are the people who are on the forefront of exploring what has been located and preserving what's already been found. On ABC Radio Melbourne and Victoria. This is the Conversation Hour. Dr. Maddie McAllister is also known as the Shipwreck Mermaid. She's the Senior Curator of Maritime Archaeology at Queensland Museum and with James Cook Uni as well. She works around that tropical north part of the state and she's one of the biggest names when it comes to shipwrecks. Maddie, good morning. Good morning. Thanks for having me. In my mind, your job makes you sound like an aquatic Indiana Jones. So break, break my heart a little bit. Tell me what a regular workday actually looks like for you. Oh, gosh. I would love to say that every day I'm an underwater Indiana Jones. That would be the dream. Um, yeah, look, and I will break your heart. Um, most of what we do is certainly, you know, for every day that I get out on the water, I'd say there's easily... 20 that are inside working and researching and doing paperwork and following up on everything. But I think that's pretty much the same for any sort of fieldwork job. So, yeah, yeah, breaking it a little bit. <laughs> yeah, in a little, just a little bit, but that's okay. <laughs> when you are out and exploring, what do you do? Like how much, do you, how much time do you actually spend underwater in these wrecks? Yeah, I guess that depends on um, which wreck and and how deep it is. Um, Some of my absolute favourite ones are reef top wrecks up here on the Great Barrier Reef that sit, you know, a metre to two metres of water and you can spend a long time certainly um, diving and snorkelling on those. So as long as possible if the weather's good and the tide's good. Um, Some of the other ones though, like, you know, some of our famous wrecks up here are in 30 metres of water and you might get two dives a day that are about half an hour each on those sites. So pretty limited sometimes. You are in, as far as I understand it, a a prime area to be exploring these wrecks. Yeah, the Great Barrier Reef, I mean, it's beautiful, hey, but it's certainly, um, it has that name for a reason um, and was certainly a navigation hazard for ships over, you know, over the past centuries and over millennia as well. So it's a great place if you're interested in ship price. <laughs> How did you get started with this, Maddie? What, what led you to becoming a maritime archaeologist? I actually wanted to be a marine biologist. Um, first off, I yeah, I was really, you know, I have always had a love for the ocean and I've had a love for marine life and being underwater and um, that has always just engaged me. But I also loved um, reading about history, like things like ancient Egypt and ancient Rome fascinated me um, when I was younger. And yeah, I just happened to... Um, meet someone and go to a lecture where I realized you could put the two together. You could put history and learning about human past together with underwater and here I am, yeah. You mentioned the marine life. Do you have to negotiate a lot of that when you are doing your dives? I mean, do you, are you right there with sharks, with snakes? With What are you doing? Yeah, there is. Um, there's certainly taking into consideration the marine life. You know, you are um, you're stepping into their world. You're the visitor, that's for sure. Um, and I would say that mostly the animals tend to ignore us. You know, we're not we're not as interesting as um, surfers or freedivers that sit, you know, in that um, interesting zone. We tend to go straight down and sit on the bottom and 
and work like that, but certainly have curious sea snakes um, operate around you. And often our favourite, which is probably pretty topical right now, is that um, um, octopus love to make homes in shipwrecks. So they're often um, an interesting sort of creature that you work around and they're very curious at what you do in their homes, yeah. <laughs> so they're actually uh, not quite helping, but really, really interested in what you've got going on. <laughs> Yeah, you can see their little light, their little homes in corners of shipwrecks, little, um, you know, their food leftovers strewn out around them. And if you work near them, they can occasionally reach out and just, you know, have a look at your camera or have a look at you and things. It's actually really cool to interact with, you know, shipwrecks become a reef and a home. So it's cool, yeah. Is that part of the complexity of it? I mean, you know, we think about archaeology and I know in the last, you know, couple of decades there's been a real change on how we treat archaeology. It's not about getting it in and out. There's a a lot more of a, a mind towards preservation. With a shipwreck, though, I mean, you're naturally working with something that's corroding because it's underwater, but it's also become part of the ecology as well. Yeah, it's a really interesting question, actually. And I think that shipwrecks have and will become a really fascinating like case study because you can see change really quickly on them. So they absolutely become a home. And sometimes, you know, our, our big steel wrecks that can survive quite a long time will create that reef habitat that you know, is an underwater oasis and has mm. fish and, you know, coral and sea life sort of accumulate on them Um, and certainly you know that is a an aspect of what we look at now if we're going to go and um, investigate a site that's more than just recording and photography if we are going to excavate you have to take into account that um, it's part of the reef now or part of the underwater environment but um, also about yeah preserving them to to a certain point shipwrecks will reach an equilibrium and often stay the same then for quite a long time. So we, we kind of monitor them and see when they get to that point and hopefully that still supports a wonderful range of marine life on them too. So Maddie, why would you make a decision to excavate versus just observe? Like what, what would be the kind of factors in that shipwreck that would make you decide one way or the other? Yeah, every shipwreck is really different and I think it's um, it's all dependent on our questions and our problems and our research. So if we have something that really, you know, you can justify and argue that there's something we don't know and this shipwreck will give us these answers, that's when you can justify a well thought out um, excavation. And it doesn't have to be the whole wreck by any means. Often we just target a small section and that's what we'll really look at and understand and excavate because it's so important to remember that as archaeologists, you know, when we excavate, we're essentially destroying the very things we love and we study. We can't ever, you know, rebury that bit and put it all back together. So you've got one chance to do it and you have to do it really, really well. So, yeah, all about that question. (laughs) And I imagine there's a real sensitivity for the shipwrecks where we know there's been a loss of life during during the wreck. Mm. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is. Um, it's something that a lot of people tend to forget. Um, wow. That most of our shipwrecks have that associated with them, and and certainly some of our older wrecks that are mostly just strewn bits and pieces on a reef top. They don't necessarily re- resemble a ship or a vessel of any sort. You can kind of separate yourself from the people on board, but. That's always something that we have in the back of our mind and and more and more moving forward that a lot of these sites are grave sites and a lot of, you know, what we do and and how we interact with that site and our research has to take that into account. Um, And sometimes that's a really important part of the story, but sometimes that's also what makes that site um, particularly significant to tell that story through the archaeology. Yeah, obviously, I mean, I think there's so much fascination for that, and especially those historical wrecks, as you were saying. Mm -hmm. I guess you're, you know, you've located a wreck, you're ready to do the dive. Paint me a picture. What's it look like as you're going down and getting closer? (laughs) Um, That certainly depends on which sort of wreck, but I can, um, my my absolute favourite, favourite to describe like this is um, one of our most famous shipwrecks in Australia and certainly in Queensland is SS Yongala and that's sort of Australia's Titanic so it's an easy way to describe 
what that looks like to people. It disappeared in 1911. It was carrying 122 people and it's a 100 metre long like iron steamship and it sits in 30 metres of water in the middle of a sort of sandy underwater desert. And when you go beneath the surface, you sort of spend all your time kitting up, putting your dive gear on. When you finally hit the water and you submerge and you go down a couple of metres, you have this chance to sort of take a moment and as you look down, you can see this absolutely massive, enormous structure start to loom up at you from the depths and start to appear. And, and that's the bow of Yongala. And it's such a moving, um, impressive structure to see. And it's, it's just incredible. There's often thousands of fish around it. And really just being able to hover 10 metres above that and see it is a feeling that not a lot of people get to get to experience and something I try to describe really well. Dr. Maddie McAllister, just hang on the line for a second because we've got Felicity from Ringwood on the phone. Felicity, you've been out at the Shipwreck Coast recently. Yes, Nick. Um, it was a, a trip that I did with my elderly mother and we just took our time going along the Shipwreck Coast and familiarising ourselves with the viewing platforms and reading up and looking up the history of the many shipwrecks that have um, succumbed to those sections. It was incredibly fascinating and really magical. It just, it gets your imagination, you know, wondering what's down there and still yet to be found. And I highly recommend it. It's some of the most beautiful coastline um, in Victoria that we've seen and we just met so many wonderful people along the way and I just thought that um, maybe listeners might you know consider going there because um, obviously these things aren't around forever in in regards to the lime stacks and whatnot and um, I highly recommend going and seeing them before they you know further erode and collapse. Felicity was it sort of an area you knew you wanted to explore was it a bit of a random find and thought oh hang on this sounds great? Um, I've always been fascinated um, with the ocean and in particular the Great Ocean Road and we were heading to Port Ferry and Warrnambool so we decided to do that extended drive along that section of Victorian coastline and we're so glad that we did. We just took our time and didn't put any time restraints on it and if we saw something that we wanted to pull over and look at we did. I mean we stopped at all the big sites like the Twelve Apostles and the Bay of Islands and oh, wow. uh, Lockhart Gorge and Port Campbell and whatnot but there's still so many other little fascinating snippets along the way to kind of explore and, and find as you go. Felicity thanks so much for calling I really appreciate it and no Maddie worries. you know I love the fact that we've got that tourism element to it as well. Uh, you know, I think it's really important that what you're working on, what you are preserving, that knowledge does get shared on through some great museums, some great work being done to make sure that that history is on display where it can be. Yeah, I think so. And that's one of the great points too is that, you know, our, our shipwrecks are incredible things, but they are often out of sight, out of mind. Mm. So having museums, having exhibitions and collections and having things like the Shipwreck Coast and that that trail and interpretation for people who might not be able to dive or just don't get the chance on that trip is such a great way to, to keep those stories alive and to keep people interested as well. Maddie, we're going to talk about how these wrecks get found in just a little bit, but like, how common is it for you during a dive to already know the, the, the name of the ship or, or some details about it before you get down there, or is that part of the exploration you're doing? It's probably about 50-50, I right. would say. Often, yeah, often the sites that we work on, we know of them, um, particularly our really significant sites, um, you know, that are extra protected are because of their story and what we know of them. But the rest of them certainly are, are mysteries. And that's one of my research um, interests and strengths is really investigating these wrecks that we don't know what they are. And I'm trying to piece those clues together. So yeah, 50-50, I think. What are you looking for? I mean, obviously a name on the side, but that'd be, you know, the holy grail, I'm sure. But yeah. How else is it just, you know, the design, you've got an idea of what shipyards and years, is that is that how you're doing this detective work? Yeah, it's a bit of a mix. Sometimes it is all about um, hitting those archives and newspaper references and and narrowing down the wrecks that 
we know went missing in this rough location and sometimes that can help but the rest of it certainly is um, understanding shipbuilding and ship construction from say the 19th century which is what I'm interested in is knowing how wooden ships were built and what put it together so different features and fastenings are really key of different eras and that can be a really good clue. It's sort of putting about, you know, I would say 20 clues together to give you an idea of what you're looking at. Why have you got such a thing for wooden ships? <laughs> um, I don't know. It's a real nerdy <laughs> thing, I think. Um, it's a, a funny interest for me, but I think, I guess it's maybe linked to what Felicity just said is that that notion of wooden sailing and seafaring and the romanticism and adventure that you can sort of put together with people who sailed on that and that time really sort of resonates with me and I find it beautiful and fascinating and um, to be able to work on those ships or what's left of them underwater and, and put those clues together is, is kind of what I like. And wood is such a fantastic, incredible material. It's it's awesome to work with, yeah. <laughs> Isn't it more likely to be corroded, though? Like, I mean, aren't you talking about a, a material that by its nature is disintegrating <laughs> as you're hunting for it? Yeah, definitely. I, I certainly have to combat that, especially <laughs> with wrecks up here. Yeah, um, wood is very precious and sometimes you don't have much left, right? So we're looking at, you know, of a, of a massive ship, a 30-metre wooden ship, we might have a tiny bit that's left, 1% of it that you can look at really and understand. But sometimes the beauty of underwater is that it preserves things better like that underwater than it could ever do on land and that's a really cool thing if it's buried and sealed it it is really good but yeah yeah so that's a really awesome thing um and i also i'm interested in copper and copper alloys which is a really um good thing for working on wrecks up here it survives pretty well so that's the that's the combination of the two yeah (laughs) dr maddie McAllister, thank you so much for taking the time this morning i really appreciate it maddie's the senior curator of maritime archaeology at queensland museum and james cook uni and uh is also very well known as the shipwreck mermaid she's one of the experts on this front on abc radio melbourne and victoria this is the conversation hour My name is Nick Healy, filling in for the next few days for Rochelle. We're talking shipwrecks and the work that goes in to discovering them. Now, you might remember just a couple of minutes ago, I said that half of the known shipwrecks off the Victorian coast haven't been located. It's not just people like Maddie, who you just heard from, who are putting in the hard yards. Heritage Victoria have a shipwreck discovery program that works really closely with a lot of different maritime industries to try and find these lost ships. There's even, believe it or not, a most wanted list of shipwrecks that need to be found. Now, Danielle Wilkinson is the Senior Maritime Archaeologist with Heritage Victoria. Danielle, when you talk about this program, who are you working with? I mean, is it fishing operations, things like that? Everyone, really. We recognise there's a lot of Victorians out on the water and in the water, whether it's for work or for fun. Um, And it's really putting a call out there just saying, please be our eyes and report anything you find to us that that might be a shipwreck or might help us in the search for one. This is almost a, a citizen science approach to shipwrecks. Absolutely. Definitely is. Yeah, anyone has the ability to be out there and looking for them. I know this is going to be a really ridiculous question, but why is it so hard to locate these ships? I mean, we've got presumably manifests. If we know the ship's gone down, how is it so difficult to then find that wreck? Well, sometimes the historic records might not have much information about where. It might say like 10 miles off Point Nepean or something, but that could be quite a large area of seabed. Uh, And it also depends how the wreck has broken down over time, and it might be buried by sands during some seasons and exposed at other times. So, um, yeah, it's it's quite more complicated than you might think to try and find them, but, you know, we still succeed. And so when you're kind of working with these people out on the water, what information are they giving you? Uh, Sometimes people might report to us timbers or even anchors that they have found while scuba diving or things might get washed up on the beach after a storm or after storm sometimes sand has moved and exposed features. Uh, So it is often, say, beachcombers, beachwalkers and and divers that report material to us. Um, But there's other types of things people can be keeping an eye out for as well, like suspicious, uh, you know, features in the seabed that don't look natural or even from aerial photography, people might 
might be able to spot shadows in the water that look, you know, or might match with the historic record for where a ship went down. That's how one's been found fairly recently. So, yeah, there's a few things to sort of keep an eye out for um, that might be useful. Oh, Daniel, the rise and rise of commercial drones or rather private drones and people just having fun with that must have been a boon for your kind of work. Oh, yeah. And also different types of uh, marine geo-surveying has become more and more accessible. So people are out there with side scan sonars or magnetometers and might be finding anomalies as well that could indicate a shipwreck. So, yeah, as the technology improves and becomes more accessible, there's a lot more that can be found. So you mentioned you've had some success stories. This, This is, you know, the information you're getting is leading to an actual discovery. Yes, yes. In the last couple of years, two shipwrecks have been found in Port Phillip, um, thanks to long, dedicated efforts by people at the Maritime, sorry, the uh, yeah Maritime Archaeology Association of Victoria. Um, two uh, people in particular um, were looking out for historic shipwrecks known in the record, um, and yeah, doing surveying, and yeah, found them. And we were lucky enough to go diving on these shipwrecks with them for the the, the first time. People had seen those shipwrecks. Which wrecks? So one was called Tommy Dodd uh, that wrecked in Port Phillip um, and Peter Taylor has been looking for that shipwreck for nearly 40 years. So it was quite a momentous find. Uh, And the other one is called Janet, which was found by Mal Venturoni, uh, which which is only in about six metres depth or so, kind of towards the heads. Um, uh, But that one we're thinking might be buried up again, actually, because there's a lot of sediment movement in that area. Is that part of the challenge too, that that's all moving around? As you mentioned, sometimes it's clear, sometimes it's buried again? Absolutely, yeah. We did two dives on Tommy Dodds about a year apart uh, and then a little while later we went diving again and the whole thing's buried. So we were were wanting to go back and get some more measurements and take some timber samples, but yeah, it's buried again. And while it's uh, buried, it's really well protected, so we won't go excavating unless we have a very solid methodology and resourcing behind that. Um, So we'll just be patient and wait for the sediment to move again and keep an eye on the site and then, yeah, try and and get some more measurements and see what else might expose. Danielle, just diving back, you mentioned beachcombers occasionally are finding the bits that are helping you put all the clues together. You know, are we leaving that on the beach? Should we be picking? I'm just trying to get a sense. Should I be, if someone's finding something that looks like it's got some value, do we leave it on the beach? Do we report it? Do we photograph it? Do we take it with us? What do we do? Best thing is to leave it where it is, but get some photos and get a location for us. We will try and get out there and look at it ourselves. Um, But as a general principle, any material you find, whether it's underwater, on the beach, it's best to leave it in place because uh, it's actually at times better protected in the environment and especially underwater um, than it is when it comes on land because once it dries out, the salts that have absorbed into the material can crystallise and start to slowly destroy the material. So, yeah, um, most materials say on shipwrecks underwater, they reach quite a good equilibrium with the environment and they're quite stable. It's only when you're changing that environment that they're then a lot more at risk. So definitely leave things where they are and send us photos, send us a location and, yeah, we'll, we'll go and check it out. And I mentioned before that Heritage Victoria kind of has the most wanted list of the shipwrecks Mm. that you're really hunting down. How have you decided on those? What makes them so important? Uh, There was quite a comprehensive study done because, as you said, there's over 300 shipwrecks we haven't found yet. Uh, And they looked at the significance of the wrecks and what they might offer us in terms of research potential, similar to what Maddie was talking about, like questions that they can answer for us. Um, So, yeah, that that top 20 list was uh, put together. And, yeah, we're we're very keen to find them. Any information is going to be very valuable. Well, I hope that you get some more people getting in touch on that one. Danielle, thank you so much for chatting this morning. Danielle's Senior Maritime Archaeologist at Heritage Victoria. If you take a look online, you'll be able to find that list. Uh, They're looking for things like the mahogany ship of an unknown name. It could be located in sand dunes near Warrnambool. Apparently there's heaps of conflicting reports and observations. Uh, They're trying to get some more information on the HMS Sappho. Uh, From 1858, it was lost in the Bass Strait making its way to Sydney. There's plenty more besides. Had a wonderful text in from Ray saying, my great-great-grandmother actually drowned on the Glenelg when it sank off the Victorian 90-mile beach in 1900. 
The wreck was then discovered in 2010 and about 40 individuals were lost in that disaster. Unfortunately, the wreck was scavenged later by unscrupulous drivers. Is plundering common on wrecks? Ray, I'm going to try and get you the answers on that. I did want to dive in a bit closer on what goes into those concerted long-term efforts to find a shipwreck. And that's what James Hunter is doing right now. He's the curator of Naval Heritage and Archaeology at the Australian National Maritime Museum. He's been on the hunt for the wreck of a Dutch frigate off the coast of Australia. James, tell me about the ship that you are searching for. Morning, Nick. Um, Yeah, so the shipwreck that we're searching for at the moment is... uh, Please, to your Dutch listeners, uh, pardon my pronunciation because <laughs> it's going to be horrific. Uh, it is the Koning Willem de Tweed, um, or the King William II, uh, which was a Dutch, 800-ton uh, Dutch merchant ship that wrecked near Robe in South Australia in June 1857. Tell me, what, why are you? what's so important about this? What do we know about it? Uh, what makes this ship unique or interesting is that it was transporting uh, approximately 400 Chinese immigrants uh, to Robe. They were bound for the gold fields in 1857. This is during the Victorian gold rush. And uh, so at that point, there was a 10-pound tax or fee levied on Chinese immigrants coming in through Victorian ports, uh, for example, Melbourne. So the way they were getting around that because most of these immigrants who were coming across were, were poor. Uh, they didn't have very much money. They spent pretty much all their money to make the, the trip from uh, China to Australia. Uh, the way they got around that was to come in through Robe, uh, because South Australia did not levy that tax, and it was the nearest port geographically to the Victorian goldfields. It's a very cheeky way of doing it, but it tells us a lot about history, even just from knowing that. Exactly. Yeah. And um, I mean, it was it must have been a horrific thing for, for a lot yeah. of these people. You know, many of these people probably had never been uh, on the ocean, had never been to sea, uh, you know, come across, uh, you know, down through Indonesia, down through pirate infested waters uh, in Southeast Asia, made their way to South Australia, uh, get deposited on this foreign shore. And then they've got to trek, you know, four to five hundred kilometers over land on foot, in most cases, uh, just to get to the diggings. So, James, when you're looking for this ship, what's in your toolkit? You've got some pretty high-tech tools at your disposal. We do. Uh, so it, it, it can you know range from the fairly high-tech to the fairly low-tech. Um, in the look, uh, on the search for Conic Willem, we've been using what's called a, a marine magnetometer. And what that is, is it's, it's basically a glorified metal detector you tow behind the boat. Uh, we, we put this out, and what this device does is it detects um, anomalies in the Earth's magnetic field. Um, so, you know, we know the Earth's magnetic field. That's been mapped fairly extensively. And uh, what happens is if you have iron, iron objects such as cannons, anchors, mast sections, chain, hardware, that sort of thing, what that does is that locally disrupts the magnetic field. And so this device will pick those disruptions up and uh, will register uh, on a computer uh, on the boat. And so we see something like that and we go, ooh, that looks interesting. Uh, Maybe we should put some divers in and have a look. Um, I will tell you, it's (laughs) just because you get a signature doesn't mean it's a shipwreck. I have been on many a dive where it looked good. We got in the water and it was a refrigerator. Oh. Or a car engine, or you know, <laughs> random stuff that people have dumped overboard, um, you know, creating artificial reefs, that sort of thing. Uh, so it's it's not a hundred percent. You normally got to put somebody in to have a look and, and see what you've picked up. We heard a bit earlier from uh, Heritage Victoria talking about how the work from just simple beachcombers, people out on the water finding photos or unusual shapes, can really help this location. Has that been of any impact to you in in this particular hunt? Absolutely. Uh, we've uh, liaised very closely with the community down in Robe. We've um, spoken to members of the National Trust, uh, the Robe History Group, uh, but also local, you know, local fish shows, um, you know, people who are on the water. They're the ones who know those waters better than anybody. And, uh, you know, we'll ask them, uh, do you have areas where you snag, uh, you know, you snag your line, snag a net, 
Uh, have you seen anything weird in the water? Uh, anything like that. And that local knowledge is incredibly important. And in many cases, it, it points us in, in the right direction and we find what we're looking for because of that. Yeah, I was thinking before when you were talking about sort of, I guess, the, the people coming through, skipping, you know, the tax that was going to come in if they went to the gold fields, the incredible importance of what it taught us about Australian history. But obviously, it's a Dutch ship. There's got to be a lot of fascination uh, from that side about what it means about their history. There is. And, and I should point out that uh, one of the reasons that we're doing this, really the biggest reason, is um, the Dutch embassy in Canberra has a... Uh, uh, shared heritage, uh, sort of an international cooperative shared heritage uh, funding scheme. Uh, and so they have these at Dutch embassies all over the world, but um, they're interested in projects that promote shared cultural heritage between the Netherlands and Australia. And the museum was approached uh, by the embassy, uh, and, and we were asked, well, do you have any projects that we could potentially fund or support? Um, and you know, we brought up some shipwrecks we had looked at up in the Coral Sea and, and Great Barrier Reef that were Dutch, mid-19th century, same time period as Conic Willem. Um, well, what happened was, you know, the pandemic had started at that point. That had put a serious limitation on our ability to travel <sighs> far and wide, as it did everybody. And so um, I kind of got to thinking about, well, what's a project that would be within continental Australia uh, that might be a bit easier to, to do? And, uh, you know, uh, had known about this this Dutch shipwreck, uh, actually because of my wife. Uh, she had gone to look for it uh, back in 2009. And I thought, ah, we should pick this up. And so um, so we, we put a proposal together. We, we sent it to the embassy, and uh, they, they liked it. They said, yeah, do that. So uh, we got some funding, and, and yeah, we're, uh, we're doing that now. And, yeah, the Dutch, uh, you know, they're very interested in, and uh, their, you know, sort of presence internationally, and uh, we're benefiting as a result of that. Is funding hard to come by for, uh, I guess, maritime archaeology? It can be. Uh, if I'm being very frank, yes, yeah. it can. Um, you know, there are shipwrecks or other sites, you know, submerged Aboriginal sites, for example, um, that are quite significant, very important. Um, and, you know, sometimes you'll see some projects get, funded a lot easier than other ones um which is you know a bit challenging because all of these sites you now they all have a really amazing story especially when you start to really dig down into them um but yeah you know ones that have a bit more international cachet you often find um you know get funded a bit easier than others <laughs> James, you mentioned nearly 15 years of you or your wife kind of working on this particular shipwreck. I mean, is that a regular amount of time? Is there a point where you go, well, that's it, we've done everything we can? Uh, well, to be fair, um, when she went down there in 2009, they, they had one go at, at having a look for that, uh, for the wreck and, and okay. had some difficulty and didn't find it. And then there was a gap. <laughs> there was a gap, a lengthy gap, uh, <laughs> until I was working for the museum, uh, you know, kind of fast forward to around 2020, you know, 2019, 2020, um, when we initially got approached by the Dutch embassy. So, uh, yeah, but there, uh, certainly there are projects that, that can span over a, a fairly considerable length of time. Uh, a good example is uh, when I was in the U.S., because you may have noticed from my accident, I'm not from around here originally. <laughs> wasn't um, going to say anything. You know, I was going to Yeah, well, it's okay. Uh, you know, so I worked on uh, uh, the first success, successful combat submarine in history, which is uh, the H.L. Hunley. Um, that was a Civil War submarine mm. in America. And uh, that shipwreck was actually raised in its entirety from the seabed in 2000 and that project is still going on because not only are they wow. studying it they're doing the archaeological study they're also conserving it uh they're stabilizing it so that it can eventually be exhibited but that can be a very lengthy process because uh, if you want to do it right it, it's a very slow methodical process of desalinating this this submarine and all the artifacts associated with it uh and to do it right it takes time and it takes money so that project is still going on uh you know 20 23 years now uh, they've been doing that 
James, we heard from Ray earlier on the text line talking about uh, the wreck of the Glen Elg that was discovered back in 2010. Um, it was a, a wreck where lives were lost. His great-great-grandmother, yep. one of them. He, he mentioned yep. that the wreck had been scavenged, and he was curious if this sort of plundering, for want of a better word, is common. What, what's your experience on that? Uh, yes, I have certainly uh, seen that happen. Uh, I began my career in Florida in the U.S., and, you know, we – have a lot of treasure ships, particularly, uh, you know, the Spanish mm. treasure ships from 1715 and 1733, as an example. Uh, a lot of those wrecks got hit pretty hard, uh, especially back in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. Um, I'm happy to say that that's changed. There, there has been a bit of a paradigm shift over time where I think people have started to recognize the heritage value of these sites. So you don't see it as much, I think, now compared to what it used to be like, you know, before people understood how fragile these sites could be. And, you know, we have people like Danny Wilkinson, who you were talking to, or Maddie McAllister, who are, you know, out there, um, you know, working to educate people and, and protect and preserve these sites. Um, so I, I think it's better now than it used to be, but it's unfortunately still happening, um, you know, and particularly where you have a shipwreck where there's loss of life. Um, you know, I personally think those sites, you know, they're, they're, they're grave sites. They're sacrosanct. They need to be protected and, and their value needs to be understood uh, and, and appreciated by people. And so, um, yeah, it's, it's hard to hear about that sort of thing. Well, especially what you were mentioning about that Civil War submarine. I mean, I mean is there a recognition, recognition of, of these wrecks as, as war graves? Um, in the case of the Hunley, uh, yes, a little bit right. sort of retroactive, but yes, um, because the crew was in it. Uh, we had all eight crewmen, uh, and their remains were handled in the absolute most appropriate way possible. Uh, to give you an example, uh, when we were working on that, uh, that wreck um, in the lab, so we brought it into a lab and did the work there, there, was, there were webcams that were monitoring, you know, just kind of like showing what we were doing. Uh, and we never turned the webcams off except when we took the remains out. That is the only time we would turn them off because we just felt that was, you know, that was the appropriate thing to do. If we're taking the remains out of the sub, we didn't want that to be sort of a, you know, big public display type thing. Uh, so, yeah. Treating that level of respect, it's a balancing act, but incredibly important one. James, I'll let you go Absolutely. in a second, but we've actually had a text in referencing Clive Cussler's books. I'm not surprised. I mentioned Peter Benchley yep. before. Do you think yep. part of the problem with that sort of uh, plundering we were mentioning before is when you look at a, a kind of pop cultural aspect, we think of we think of shipwrecks as something that are meant to be explored and have things taken away from. Well, you, you do kind of see that in popular culture, uh, you know, and, and I think sometimes there's there's sort of a misinterpretation or understanding of what mm. archaeology involves, like proper study of a shipwreck site. You know, it, it's not about getting down there and just grabbing all the goodies, you know. And, Ooh, look at that. That's shiny. Let's get that off the bottom. Uh, you know, there's a whole process of assessing what's on the site, documenting everything as thoroughly as possible and then you know if recovery is an option if that's the chosen option then making sure that that is done in such a way that the object that's recovered is is not damaged or destroyed and that the rest of the wreck site is also not damaged or destroyed during that recovery process because ultimately as archaeologists what we want to do is we want to tell the story and we need to get as many pieces of data as many pieces of the puzzles we can get to ensure that that story is as complete as possible. And the only way you can do that is to make sure that your documentation is thorough, your recovery is done in a responsible manner, and, and that tells that more complete story that I think in the end is really much more interesting to people than just some shiny object that you pulled out and put on a mantelpiece and you're like, okay, that's cool, but what's the story behind that? Yeah, we want it. We need that knowledge. And just on that topic, James, you find the King William next week, let's say. Who owns that shipwreck? So that shipwreck is the responsibility and, and effectively is owned by the state of South Australia. 
Um, you know, they have a, a maritime heritage officer, uh, and they have their heritage office uh, within the state government uh, who are responsible for that wreck. Um, it's uh, yeah, because it was a merchant ship. It's not a, a not a naval vessel. Uh, or not a uh, Dutch government-owned vessel at the time of its loss, um, huh. it, so it's not it's not a sovereign vessel. Um, so because of that, generally what's recognized is that the waters within uh, which that shipwreck resides, they're the ones who are responsible for it, and they are basically the de facto owners of that wreck site. Dr. James Hunter, it's been fascinating chat, and thank you so much. James is the curator of naval heritage and archaeology at the Australian National Maritime Museum. This is the Conversation Hour on ABC Radio Melbourne and Victoria. And my name is Nick Healy, filling in for Rochelle for the next few days and coming to you from Shepparton in the Goulburn Valley. What's it mean for a community when a shipwreck is found? Now, in Inverloch, locals discovered the remains of a 160-year-old shipwreck, the Amazon, and a whole team of volunteers, amateur archaeologists, community members, they got together and they created the Amazon 1863 group to preserve and conserve the wreck. And the vice president of the project is Adrian Brewer. Adrian, uh, tell me about the Amazon. Tell me about how it got found. Um, well, there was always um, a local knowledge of a, of a shipwreck in the area. And uh, there was it was very well detailed when it actually um, was wrecked because the ship was intentionally beached. Um, it had gone out from Melbourne um, and gone off to... Mauritius, but was actually uh, blown back. It got as far as Otway, and it was blown back by a storm. And they, the crew, fought for for two days straight to try and uh, take control of of the ship. And in the end, uh, they couldn't get back into Port Phillip Bay. So the captain decided, um, we'll have we'll beach it uh, where we could, and that would happen to be Inverloch. So. They, the crew got off. It took them two days to get off, but mm. uh, they did. Uh, no lives were lost. There was a crew of uh, 13, uh, we found out, and the youngest of which was 11. He was uh, the ship's boy. Uh, but they all survived, and after two weeks, um, a ship came down and, and picked them up. Uh, Captain Ogier had um, gone off to try and find help, and as, as luck would have it, while he was going off through the bush, a young chap who lived in... Well, there was only two houses in Inverloch at the time and none of them were permanent settlements. And this young chap happened to be going to Melbourne by horse to have uh, Christmas with dinner with his family and he saw the distress flag. So he decided to go off and have a look and met Captain Agier and uh, put him on his horse and away they went. So the- um, they got... Sorry... No, I was going to say, the, so the rescue was successful, which is some great news. Um, it is. It, it came in that um, all their sails had been stripped, but uh, basically they pointed it at the beach. Uh, the, the keel was torn off on the way in, and it beached itself. It um, buried, buried itself um, three metres into the sand. So, And then um, after it just got basically destroyed over the last 150 years, um, port side is gone. We don't know where the keel is. There's just bits all over the place. Um, but what we do have is part of the um, what we believe is the starboard section, which is now buried under sand again. So how long has the project been working on, on making sure that what is left of the Amazon is looked after? Well, in 2018, Heritage Victoria did an archaeological survey on the wreck because the dunes had receded the dunes had actually covered over the wreck, and oh. now, because of erosion, the dunes are now receding, and that exposed the wreck. So that gave a prime example, um, opportunity rather, for Heritage Victoria to come down and do a, a week-long survey. Um, I was doing a, um, an amateur course through uh, Heritage Victoria at the time, and was invited onto the onto the dig, and there was a group of people who were sort of coming around every day to have a look and and a couple of them said, oh, you know, somebody should do something about this. And then um, we got talking and realised that, you know, everything gets left to other people, so maybe <laughs> we, are the, we are the people who should do something. And that's where the Amazon 1863 project uh, came about. 
It sounds like there's a lot of local passion for looking after the Amazon. Um, there is. People are, um, I mean, there's a bit of... Um, we're trying to find at the moment if there's any links with people who live here now. Uh, we've got crew lists, we've got uh, passenger lists, um, and people have sort of realised, oh, we've got this real shipwreck you know, here, so um, we're trying to preserve what we can. Uh, at the moment, space is limited, so we've kind of got to leave things buried on the beach. But um, it, now, uh, the Bass Coast Shire Council, along with other um, government departments, and um, we've got uh, a new cultural heritage building, which is um, going to be built in the next, I don't know how long years, but it's 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 being it's planned, and um, we're going to have a museum space there for Amazon Rex, along with the Dinosaur Dreaming and the Shell Museum and, and what have you. So we've actually got somewhere near to put things when we can preserve them. But preserving them, of course, is uh, extremely lengthy and, and extremely uh, expensive. But the people are rallying around. We've got. Um, there are about 85 members, and we get information back from them because they've suddenly taken it on as a personal um, uh, challenge, if you like, mm. to find out a bit more about the ship and, and about the crew. And, and it was from one of these members we got crew lists, so that, that was a great leap forward. An incredible work on that, that the whole community side to make sure that everything comes together. Congratulations on what's happening with that cultural building as well. I think that's fabulous news, Adrian. Adrian Brewer is the Vice President of the Amazon 1863 Project. And look, staying on that local tourism side and what these shipwrecks can mean, I know Warrnambool has been well regarded as one of the best towns around to explore Victoria's shipwreck coast. Paul Thompson runs the Flagstaff Hill Maritime Museum Village in town. Uh, Paul, we heard from Felicity before who called in just to say that she'd done the shipwreck coast with her mum and it was one of the great experiences. She was kind of like, why aren't people talking about this more? Why aren't people putting it on their bucket lists? Yeah, that's that's exactly right because it, it is such a fantastic experience because you, you're not only getting a great na nature experience of the wild southern ocean and the coastline and things like that, but, but when you stand there and look at those coasts and imagine what it would have been like to be a shipwreck victim or, you know, person that's coming ashore off a shipwreck, it, it, yeah, it's a very uh, very strong emotional experience. Is it a driver of tourism directly for you? Oh, it certainly is. I mean, at the Flagstaff Hill Maritime Village Museum here, we, we're one of the largest shipwreck collections in Australia with over 10,000 objects here. And that includes the most famous, which is the Lockhart Peacock, which is a minted uh, porcelain worth well over $5 million, I might add, that's, uh, that's here in, in the museum. So, it's a, yeah, it's a great driver of tourism. That would be something to come and watch. I mean, how, how hard has it been, I guess, being able to preserve all of this stuff, you know, that's an incredible collection for any museum to have. That's a lot of work that goes into that. Uh, that that's right. We have a great uh, museum curator here, just Justin Croft, who uh, heads up the team here, and he's got a great bunch of passionate volunteers, and they painstakingly, you know, go through all the all the items and objects and list them and record them, and then curate museum displays and activities for, for people to do. So, yeah, it's a it's a big deal um, and it, it is great fun. I mean, you know, we've also got the, the lighthouses here, the two lighthouses mm. which used to used to guide ships into the bay here at Warnable. So, so yeah, so it's quite fascinating, the whole history here. And, yeah, people love coming to experience it and, and gaze along the coastline. And, Paul, is it a growing collection? Like, are you working with the kind of maritime archaeologists <laughs> we've been talking about now to, to kind of continue to expand? We it, it does grow more so from people donating some you know artifacts they may have in their in their garage or things like oh, that. Oh wow! A, a, a lot of people don't realize. I mean, we've still got timbers in buildings here in Warrnambool <laughs> that are made from shipwrecks. You know, the ship's masts are holding up some of our storage sheds and buildings here in Warrnambool, and and even along the coastline, bars and houses were built out, out of timbers from shipwrecks. So yeah, we're still getting uh, yeah donations coming in and things like that. But we have a whole collection policy and yeah it's all, all done through all the proper channels but yeah it's, it's it's fascinating 
Paul, I hadn't even considered that, that of course where you are, there'd be just, you know, over the decades, over the centuries, people finding bits and pieces and not even putting together what it might mean in terms of the historical aspect of it. It's just a curio to have in the shed. Oh, that that's right. And I was interested to hear, <laughs> you know, your stories of plundering, but, you know, anecdotally, there was whole families here that would, you know, build a house out of shipwrecked timbers, but, you know, mum would get maybe bolts of cloth washed ashore to make clothes, you know, dad might get some tobacco and, and kids were getting toys washed up on the beach from shipwrecks as well. So it's a, it's a very fascinating story about the, yeah, the preservation of the time capsules of, of moments in time when these ships traveled through and, the stories of journeys that just never were quite completed. And, uh, yeah, it's fascinating. And obviously it's an education on your side as well to let people know it's okay to get in touch, it's okay to tell us that you've got this stuff. We're really keen to look after it. Yeah, that, that's right, and it's uh, yeah, and it's great. We we have a great relationship with all the communities around here, and yeah, it's 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 still fascinating what what comes through the door occasionally. Is uh, well, I heard you talking about the mahogany ship there. We've we've got a chair mm. that's believed to be off the mahogany ship, but trying to get the provenance of that is is challenging. But yeah, it's even things like that. Uh, yeah, that's it's never a dull day here. That's for sure. Is there a bit of that in the museum where you know something's got historical value, but you're still waiting to get that information, waiting to find out exactly where it was from? Uh, there's a lot of that in the museum <laughs> um, because a, a lot of stuff back in the day was just picked up off the ocean floor and brought in with, without any provenance of where it came from, whereabouts. So there's just, yeah, there's all sorts of weird and wonderful things here that, that are like that. We just don't know where they're from or what ship they're off, but they're obviously from a shipwreck because yeah, they're old and, and rusty or, or you know, <laughs> battered up into timber. <laughs> Paul, you casually mentioned before, it sounds like it's very volunteer-driven what you do. Uh, it, it is a lot of it's volunteer driven. We have a great setup of volunteers, and and even in, on the fifth of November coming up, we have Wreckfest, which is a festival totally run by the Friends of Flagstaff Hill as a volunteer organisation. And and that Wreckfest festival is going to be talking about all the experiences and and shipwreck artifacts that are that are around here, and and great stories, and also some of the lost trades from from the ships that uh, that occurred. You know, blacksmithing and sail making and things like that. So. Yeah, we, we how, heavily how rely on How big does Wreckfest get? It sounds huge. Uh, well, this is the first one, so uh, oh. we're, we're hoping that, uh, yeah, this is its inaugural year. So, yeah, it's, um, it's a fantastic initiative by the folks here and, uh, yeah, really looking forward to having a day where we can – it's not really a celebration, but it's certainly a, an understanding and coming together and experience, you know, what, what it means to be yeah, part of a maritime village and have these experiences and, and the, rec, you know, the, the wrecks that pass through here because they are great stories. They're Paul, fascinating be- stories, they're not great stories. Best of luck with that. I'm going to try and get on the road and actually get down for Wreckfest. But uh, that sounds like a blast. Paul Thompson's the manager of tourism uh, for the Warrnambool City Council. They run Flagstaff Hill Maritime Museum Village. Thanks for your company this week. I'll be back on Monday. 